Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 51. Uh, then at 1.15 p.m., we'll reconvene here. Now we have a busy, intriguing day before us. Uh, let's get started. And here comes Air Force Number 1, and the President and Mrs. Kennedy have arrived at Dallas Love Field. And there is Mrs. Kennedy, the First Lady, stepping from the plane, wearing a bright pink suit with a dark fur collar and a matching pink hat, and the President, wearing a dark suit, steps off directly behind. They are being greeted by placards of varying emotion, those saying, we're with you all the way, JFK, and those saying, help JFK stamp out democracy. So he is seeing Dallas County politics at the height of a very boiling moment. I came to see the president, and I said to the president, God bless you, and I met it. And here comes the president now. In fact, he's not in his limousine. He's reaching across the fence, shaking hands with many of the people who have come here to see him. But this is one of those impromptu moments for which President Kennedy is so well known. So many times you have heard that the Secret Service men suddenly find themselves without the president. The president and Mrs. Kennedy seated on the back seat, Governor and Mrs. Connolly on the jump seats, and the trip to downtown Dallas in the trademark is underway. And here comes Jackie waving by. My dad loved NCIS. He watched the episodes over and over. He knew the words and the storyline of almost every show. There were other shows like it. CSI and Law and Order were a couple of them. But there was something about that one for my dad. Occasionally, I would watch an episode with him. The good news is that it didn't matter if that particular episode had been on before. I think he may have had as much fun watching it the fourth time as he did the first. My brother Dennis got a chance to watch many more of those episodes than I did. He was there more on the spot to take care of and be with my dad, and it helped so much in those later years. Those episodes first came out in about 2003, and even though it was about 30 years later, it was a far cry from the investigative techniques they featured on the very first crime show that many of us watched, and that I watched as a kid. It was called The FBI. That show premiered in 1965, and it was on, as I recall, every Sunday night, and it featured a guy named Ephraim Zimblist Jr. What a name. He was a good-looking guy, and he was really great for the FBI brand. And at the end of each episode, it carried a message. As I recall, it might have been from Mr. Hoover himself. The reality was that, well, the science itself at that time was better than the show. Even though both were, I don't know, how would I say it, in black and white and not color. Now, in 2020, of course, the truth, well, it's reversed. The shows are truly better than the science. 
But to be fair, both have improved over the years. Sure, you know, things in the world of forensics have gotten more sophisticated. 2000 was not 1960, and surely 2000 is not 2020. But all of these hit shows that have portrayed forensic science as a magical, near-flawless tool for identifying criminals, well, the truth is that Hollywood's depiction of forensic science is overstated. In 2009, scientists with the National Research Council noted that no forensic method, except for nuclear DNA analysis, can reliably and consistently connect evidence to a specific individual or source. Stop and think about that statement because it's powerful. Also, we have heard a lot about artificial intelligence in the media in the last few years, especially in the world of business where first-generation AI is beginning to take hold in a myriad of ways and applications. There are implications in criminal science about these kind of technology advances, too. During the Obama administration, President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology reported that pattern-matching forensic procedures are unreliable. Even more recently, we've seen some fallout from that. In general, that conclusion has ramifications for facial recognition software, and clearly that's an example where inadequacies have been identified. It has ramifications for other technologies, too. Obviously, we have to remember that technology is marching at an ever faster pace, faster than ever before, and what was a problem last year and deemed to be unreliable may indeed rise to the level of DNA reliability in the future. That is the beauty of technological advancement. And look, all of us, we do hope that occurs. Why? Well, it will make the job of everyone involved in investigating and prosecuting a crime easier in one sense. In the end, it'll make it easier for a juror as well. In our country's current social context, this whole topic is the center of an especially important point. The Innocence Project has exonerated many hundreds of wrongfully convicted people, and bad forensic science was found to be a contributing factor in about half of the original cases. That is startling, isn't it? You know, I always heard the saying, listen to the evidence. The evidence doesn't lie. But the truth is, in everyday real life, lots of problems and scenarios put a kink in this theory. These problems and scenarios are not new. Six years before the National Research Council's 2009 report, one writer talks about his work on a panel of that very same council. That panel looked at a particular forensic technique used to match bullets found at crime scenes, typically murders, to bullets found in a suspect's possession. That procedure, called comparative bullet-lead analysis, was first used in the investigation into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. What the panel found 40 years after the event contradicted the FBI's analysis of the evidence at that time, and as he tells it, caused the FBI to stop using the technique altogether. Wow. Wonder how many people were convicted in that 40-year period in cases where that type of analysis had a bearing on the outcome. These kind of stories bring us back to the earth when it comes to forensic science. From the lofty goals and lofty places that forensics teases us with, there is always the here and now. 
What do I mean by that? Well, you can apply neutron activation analysis on a bullet, but if the sheriff who was responsible for the retrieving of that bullet and the safekeeping of that bullet from the moment he found it to the moment it undergoes that test and during testing and then responsible for returning it to the evidence room in readiness for the trial, well, all this is otherwise known as the chain of custody. If that sheriff and all of his compadres do not maintain that chain of custody, well then, old school chain of custody problems, Trump, (laughs) no pun intended here, new school neutron analysis testing. Simple as that. Well, maybe. It is true that everything you know about a case has to be put into proper context as a juror. What makes documentation and chain of custody even more important in today's world is that we know, we now know, and it's out in the open in a big way in our current society, that law enforcement and prosecutors too, well, between them and amongst them, mistakes are sometimes made. And sadly, sometimes evidence is even tampered with. Now, I am not trying to paint the police or anyone else as bad guys. By and large, and as a whole, they do a yeoman's job of trying to get all this right. And they do, I think, get it right in most cases. And I am sure that in a typical criminal case, there are plenty of antics that can be carried on by both sides, defense and prosecution. But it's 2020, and what we know now in this electronic age is that it wasn't long ago that things weren't always on the up and up, especially in the time of the world when cheating on these type of things could almost be done in broad daylight, and the authorities had a pretty good chance of getting away with it, at least when it came to these types of matters. And that was pretty much up until, well, not long ago. And by the way, the root of a lot of it was chain of evidence custody as well. (laughs) Thank goodness for the system of justice that we have. The right to a fair trial and to at least show that these things, these kind of things, could have occurred. That evidence in a given circumstance might be tainted. That the chain of custody might have been broken. And that you, as a juror, should take these facts into consideration when determining whether you believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crime. Still, When seeking the truth, no one feels good about letting a killer go on a technicality. In a moral sense, the goal is to find the real truth, regardless of the technicalities. Did the defendant commit the crime or not? But the duties of a juror go beyond that. In our system of jurisprudence, it has to be more. There is a higher standard placed on the authorities to prove the guilt of a defendant. The gift that comes to defendants as a result of thousands of years of oppressive behavior by other authorities in other societies that came before. Sound familiar? Back to the future. Again. You may wonder why I took that wander to begin with. Well, it wasn't just about chain of custody. Although chain of custody is a pretty good example since its importance is ubiquitous with all physical evidence. It was really about reinforcing the basic fact that even though the evidence doesn't lie, there are still challenges with physical evidence. 
It's a scientifically proven fact that relying on the physical evidence isn't always foolproof. Again, for a myriad of reasons. And I think what makes it even more challenging in the JFK case is where there is a full-blown suspicion around the evidence-gathering process itself that was the result of some poor technique displayed in broad daylight by the Dallas police right from the get-go. And then the FBI's whole approach to the case, that it was a lone gunman. So all the evidence, whether it be testimony or physical evidence, would need to conform. What a recipe for introducing problems with what may have been found, and perhaps even found and then altered, and outright boundless suspicion about what may have been simply ignored. And what is most important here is that those most trusted with the fact-finding, well, sometimes they do find themselves in an extraordinary moment where truth is stranger than fiction. Case in point is where the authorities were handed the so-called pristine bullet, which became, rather famously, Commission Exhibit 399. It is only when you are trusted that you can receive such a bullet and such a fact that is so much stranger than fiction is, well, believed. But you know the old saying, lie to me once and, well, you know the rest. Trust is a hard thing to earn and even harder to restore when it has been broken. As we begin this portion of the podcast on forensics, I asked myself a similar question as I had done when we began the miniseries on episodes that deal with the Dealey Plaza witnesses and the Grassy Knoll. This is a rather famous part of the case, particularly the parts that deal with the president's autopsy. And I was concerned that I would have to work very hard to do this part of the podcast real justice. More importantly, to do justice to the JFK assassination story. Well, let me say that a little differently. I am no stranger to working hard, so I wasn't afraid of that. What I am afraid of is not doing the story itself justice. I am satisfied with how we presented the Dealey Plaza witnesses and the Grassy Knoll story. We didn't get everything, but we got most everything that was material. But honestly, there is a big difference between Dealey Plaza and the Knoll and the forensics. Let's face it, I am not an MD, and I am not a forensic pathologist, and I am not a professional investigator or member of law enforcement. No special training to undertake this task. With that very humbling reality platform as a basis for beginning this portion of the storytell, I candidly asked myself two questions over and over that I thought germane to writing and producing these episodes. First, what did I want the reader to come away with out of what is literally a mountain of evidence? How could it be distilled into something relevant and memorable and understandable? And second, what approach could I take in presenting the story that facilitates that same objective without leaving gaping holes in the story itself or gaping technical holes that you can drive a truck through. Again, I humbly submit that I am not an MD, or a forensic pathologist, or an investigator, or law enforcement official. 
None of the above. Just a juror like you. Well, like the camping trip I described in our last episode, I knew that I was going to have to rely on whatever skills that I do have and not worry about the skills that I don't have. Use what I have to do the best job I can for all of you in telling this part of the story. In the business roles that I have undertaken over the years, as I moved to progressively more responsible roles, I really came to understand rather clearly that it was an executive's role to simplify things, not make them more complicated. It was my role to receive and sift through the endless complexity and find the clear simplicity of it all. Remove the chaos and restore the order to the thoughts and the approach to defining and solving problems, with the understanding that the details still matter and, indeed, control the reality of the outcome. That concept eventually became a tenet of my own thinking and writing on the everyday basis in the world that I existed in for so many years. I didn't always practice that with perfection, but I came to understand it deeply over the years. Simply put, it's simplification and not complication. So with that in mind, I am undertaking this next phase with a great dose of humility and excitement all at the same time. I hope when we finish with this portion of the story tell that we can look back at it and say that it deserves a place on the bookshelf that is right next to the other work we've done so far in this podcast series, and that it represents the subject matter well, that it adequately, objectively, and appropriately tells this part of the JFK assassination story. I am sure that it will reinforce why, one day last year, I decided to give this podcast the title, JFK, The Enduring Secret. The remainder of this podcast today outlines and weaves together into a synopsis of sorts the areas that we will most definitely cover in the area of forensics. I am sure it will change a bit as we go, but you have to start with a roadmap on this part of the journey. And when you cross a desert, going straight is uh, the fastest way to get to the oasis on the other side. Heck, we may end up in Palm Springs for a minute or two. Doesn't Frank Sinatra live there? He's got to have a place in this story somewhere. Oh, well. Remember from the very beginning, I promised you a podcast with a wander, and every wander that we have taken has had some significance to this story, especially if you know me, or just truly want to understand the JFK story a little deeper than you otherwise would. You have to listen carefully, though, so please do be patient and stay tuned for a smashing series of episodes up next. Oh, and not to get too far ahead of myself, but after the forensics, it's off to explore Lee Harvey Oswald and the murky world that he most certainly lived in. One foot in one place and one foot in another. Who was he exactly? And as one listener said to us on the blog not long ago, perhaps the key to the whole thing at this stage is truly understanding who Lee Harvey Oswald was really was. My gosh, you can't make this stuff up, can you? So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 51. 
The story of the autopsy is filled with stuff that I often call jet fuel for the conspiracy theorists. Some of it, but certainly not all of it, may be true. What makes that part scary is that all the actors in that part of the play are basically government actors. I don't have to explain the ramifications to that. It's uh, self-evident, I think. But the obvious takeaway is that Lee Harvey Oswald can shoot the president, or a group of mobsters can shoot the president, or a group of rogue CIA agents can shoot the president, or even some combination thereof can shoot the president. And it's still just a conspiracy about the shooting. But when folks begin to take action afterward, during the official investigation, it's now a conspiracy involving a cover-up. And for a long time, when the official working premise of conspiracy experts was that it was a coup d'etat and overthrow of the existing government, many conceived a circumstance where it was all intertwined. One big cover-up executed under one big master plan because it was a coup d'etat. A cover-up of the shooting conspiracy and then a squashing and a cover-up of the investigation afterward. That may be true. But the more popular theory today is that the cover-up of the investigation may very well have been well-intentioned based on the federal government's knowledge about Oswald and the true facts behind who ordered it. Or, at the very least, fear about who might have ordered it and the consequences to world peace if the true answer had ever been revealed. Perhaps it is the reason today for the still ongoing hesitation to disclose all of the required documents under the JFK Act. That was a bit of a wander, but again, an important one. And remember, understanding the motives of each group involved is clearly part of evaluating the evidence that is tied to each of them and that you have before you for evaluation. Let us start by trying to develop some construct for what the forensic evidence should be helping us to figure out. I am going to use an approach which enumerates various topics in order for me to keep track of them all, and as we progress through them episode by episode. Number one, the evidence surrounding ownership and possession of the rifle, the Manlicker Carcano rifle. Was it really Oswald's? Does it really tie back to other gunshot evidence gathered at the crime scene? Number two, the fingerprint and other evidence such as the paraffin tests related to that same rifle. Fingerprint and other evidence that indicates whether Lee Harvey Oswald handled the rifle around the time of the shooting and whether he may have fired the weapon. Number three, the evidence around the three spent cartridges that were retrieved that day on the sixth floor and what they reveal to investigators, including how they match up with other evidence, and how chain of custody comes into play. Number four, Oswald's capability with a gun and the likelihood that Oswald or anyone with similar marksman capabilities could make that shot from the window with that particular rifle. What the government and certain news agencies did after the fact to try and recreate that shot and study the effects related to the use of a Manlicker Carcano rifle. On this one, we won't plow new ground on anything that we have already gone over in previous episodes. And on this one, I stress that we will always live 
in a world of probabilities. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Whether Oswald was a good shot and whether the Carcano was good enough, well, we all know that that shot was possible, regardless of what the answers are to the latter two questions. So the real question is, is it more likely or is it less likely? Or could it be that it is highly possible? Or could it be that it is not even remotely possible? You get my drift. This question, it is not a yes or no answer. It is not a 100% certainty, nor is it a 100% uncertainty. Number five, the damage to the presidential limousine and what that damage tells us about the origin of at least some of the shots and how that evidence impacts the conclusions on whether four or more shots were fired that day, making it a de facto shooting conspiracy. Within this topic, we'll ask the question about the damage to the presidential limousine's windshield and whether that damage points to a shot which may have come from a direction other than the school book depository. Number six, along with looking at the limousine itself, we will look at the recovery of bullet fragments from the limousine and how that plays into both the lone gunman and single bullet theory and the bullet count and the chance that there was a shot taken from the front. Number seven, the extent to which any of the evidence at the autopsy indicates that a shot came from anywhere other than the school book depository. A shot from anywhere else, from any other angle of approach, that would indicate fire from another location. Remember, just one more bullet conforming to that fact, that is all it takes, and that indicates a shooting conspiracy. The rest of the mechanical details of the autopsy are, frankly, a means to an end. To get this simple conclusion or refute it. Confirm it or refute it based on what side of the story you're on, of course. Number eight, the extent to which any of the evidence in the autopsy, when combined with the missed shot that hit Tag, points to three or more bullets hitting the limousine or its passengers. Evidence that translates into four bullets or more in total, as I've just said, and thus a shooting conspiracy. The commission's contention is that two shots hit Kennedy and Conley, the magic bullet, and then, of course, the final and fatal shot to the back of President Kennedy's head. Number nine, the statements, stories, and testimony of the doctors and other clinicians who attended to the president at Parkland Hospital and inside trauma room one in the vain attempt to save him, and how that testimony compares and contrasts to the official autopsy findings. Number 10, the struggle for possession of the president's body and the fantastic stories surrounding the chain of evidence related to it and how that impacts the notion and probability that someone might have altered the president's body prior to the autopsy for the purpose of obscuring the autopsy information. This topic has been given a lot of airtime in the world of JFK assassination lore, and it's been done by some fairly credible people at moments. So it's one we'll want to look at closely. Number 11, the search for other ballistics evidence in the plaza. Why? Well, any evidence of other shots of any kind coming from any type of gun gives a strong indication that the Manlicker Carcano found on the sixth floor 
could then not be the only gun involved, and thus a shooter conspiracy. Number 12. A special look at the pristine bullet given its juxtaposition as a linchpin in the single bullet theory and its almost unbelievable story of discovery. The simple question of bullet weight loss as it traveled through the body mass of the president and Governor Conley, leaving fragments during that journey, fragments that simply do not add up. Today, the known fragments weigh more than weight lost by this bullet. Wow, there is a long list of things that the forensics should weigh in on. Not just these, but these are most of the big ones and certainly a good start. As a juror, I would ask that you weigh in on these and make a comment on the blog if you want to hear about other topics that are covered in this forensic discussion. There is still time to call other witnesses and, and get their take on other topics. Many of these topics will be interwoven into the story we tell about the president's ride to Parkland and what happened that day at the hospital and then his ensuing trip back to Washington. Still others will be addressed as we tell the story of the autopsy. Even though I have broken these down today and enumerated them, my goal is to still tell as much of this in story form as I can. We all know it's more enjoyable that way, and it's easier to tie it all together, too. Our next episode is a dive right in. Join us as the presidential limousine races to Parkland in the vain attempt to save the life of a slain president. Thank you for listening to Episode 51 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.